Are you passionate about resolving conflicts and making positive impact in the world? Then USD's Conflict Management and Resolution Master's program may be for you. Learn to address conflicts at all levels, from personal disputes to global crises. Join the Croc School's dedicated community, fostering peace and understanding while you acquire practical skills to navigate diverse settings. Apply now and be the change you want to see in the world. Visit sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. That's sandiego.edu slash peace slash VOSD. Join culture creator Ramel Wallace, museum CEO Micah Parson, philanthropist Erwin Jacobs, and urban agriculturist Diane Moss on season two of Stop and Talk, a podcast about the future of the San Diego region. How can we create a vibrant region that celebrates our cultural richness and economic strength? Find out and hear other San Diego experts on Stop and Talk. Discover seasons one and two now at stopandtalkpodcast.com. That's stopandtalkpodcast.com. Levi Jeff. Let me see if I can do this. All right. Levi Jeffalioni. 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 Yeah. Right, let me do that again. Three, two. Thanks for joining us on this Voice of San Diego podcast bonus episode. I'm Scott Lewis, the CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego. I hope you've been listening to all these bonus interviews, and I look forward to hearing what you think. But if you listen to the one with Councilman Chris Kate, who recently was termed out of his job as a city councilman at the city of San Diego, you may have heard our exchange about homelessness. Kate, like all city leaders, said in short that it's getting worse in the city, and he didn't offer much hope about what we would see soon to improve it. Homelessness in San Diego is a crisis. I think it's an acute emergency and we should treat it like a natural disaster. But it's as diverse a problem as the people who are experiencing it. I wanted to talk to one person who had experienced it. Levi Giafalioni works with the National Alliance on Mental Illness and helps people every day who are suffering on the streets right now. He comes at it with an informed perspective because he used to live and survive on the streets of Los Angeles. He talks here about how chaotic life on the streets is and how so much of what you may be seeing when you come across people experiencing homelessness may be a product of their desire to have some control, even a little bit of control and impact over what's happening around them. I found that point in the conversation with him very powerful. I hope you do too. Here's Levi Giafalioni. You were homeless at one point, right? Can you tell us the story of what happened? Yeah. Um, so I ended up homeless in my early adulthood, uh, pretty much right after high school, as a result of coming out as a member of the LGBT community in my family. And also um, my mom having her own mental health struggles that uh, went un- unacknowledged and untreated uh, for a long time. So uh, pretty much right off the bat, I struggled really hard at 18. I was working like 60 hours a week um, and trying to pay California rents. And this was up in um, LA at the okay. time. And um, just, What kind of jobs were you doing? Uh, so I was trained, uh, a p- personal trainer, and I also did diet plans for people. I worked at like LA Fitness, uh, Curves for a bit. Uh, lots of different gyms mm-hmm. and uh, that lifestyle for a while. So um, I worked at Universal Studios at one point. That was probably my favorite job, but mm-hmm. that was also where things started kind of unraveling because just in my regular daily commute, um, I was acquiring tickets for you know various things, not stopping long enough. Uh, a couple times I got tickets for being on the phone with my bosses. Mm-hmm. Um, How long ago was this, by the way? So this is, we're talking about like 2008 and uh, yeah, everything just got kind of turned into a slippery slope. I wanted to pay my tickets. I, I hadn't, you know, no idea about really resources at that time other than, okay, go apply for food stamps. And it's changed a little bit now, but back then um, they had told me, oh, you have a hundred dollar savings bond. You have to go cash that out and then, you know, come back and apply. So I did that. And then I came back and they said, oh, you're not homeless because you stay in your car so that I couldn't get food stamps either. Uh, and that was kind of like the only, that was the extent of resources that I knew at that time. So so at that point, you you had 
ended up in your car. You, the $1,800 a month was not something you could keep doing. Yeah, it definitely wasn't. And then having to pay the tickets, like there was, you know, I didn't know. And I don't, still don't think at the time there were any resources for helping people pay tickets, but they were so expensive. Each one was like, you know, half my rent. So mm-hmm. um, I thought I'll move into my car and I'll pay off all these tickets. And um, it just was a slippery slope from there. And uh, my interactions with the police and getting tickets started happening like every day at that point. So, so where, where were you parking and sleeping? Um, at Weddington Park, which is right outside of Universal Studios. Um, and so I you're was, working still. Yeah, I was working. And, um, and it was uh, above minimum wage at the time. So uh, I, I feel like we've jumped really close into like a lot of personal stuff. So I appreciate you doing this and being comfortable sharing. The more we understand how this can happen to people, the better, I think, for the whole community to deal what we can do to, to figure out what we can do to stop it from happening and reverse that sort of trend. So... Uh, you are still working. You're in your car nearby. W- what's the next step in the progression? Um, so I was really just stuck in this cycle of grinding it out. I didn't. Uh, I was too ashamed to like let any of my coworkers slash friends know what was going on. Um, one, uh, a couple people did figure out at various times. There was one lady who worked on City Loft, and she said, "Can you cook?" And I was like, I, "Yeah," and so. She said, you can sleep on my couches if you can cook. So I stayed with her for a couple of weeks. Different, like, you know, opportunities where people who had kind of, you could tell, lived through it, spotted it in me. Um, but for the most part, it was very much like a secret that I tried to keep. Can you spot it in people? I feel like, I feel like I've gotten so much better at it. What do you look for? Hmm. I guess it just, it just, it. I mean, they'll say it in some way or the other. And it's, um, I do remember like one lady specifically when I was homeless that I spotted it and uh, I paid attention to my intuition. When I was homeless, I would go to the like ride six blocks to the 99 cent store and buy up a bunch of sunglasses and I would bring them back to the boardwalk and I would sell them for $10 a piece. And this one lady had come up and um, she was like a little sunburn on her face. She was looking at them and said, like, oh, I don't have any money, but these are very beautiful sunglasses. I'm thinking they're from a dollar store, but mm-hmm. okay. And uh, and then the next day she came back, but I noticed she was wearing the same clothes. And so I told her, you know what, go, just go ahead. And she was much more sunburned day two. Um, so, I, like, she ended up opening up to me, and I got her some clothes and Told her about what resources I knew for people her age in the area. And um, she told me that So she was like late 50s, early 60s. And she told me her husband had found a new woman and kicked her out. And she didn't have any family that was still alive. And so that was how she ended up down there with us. But yeah, I guess just being present. So what's what happens next? There was various like uh, bits of homelessness also like around the country where I was young and trying to tell myself like, oh, I'm traveling, like, you know, trying to take back some kind of control or like power over my situation. Yeah. Like, um, like not I'm traveling because I have nowhere to go to. <laughs> like, but, um, but yeah, that was, that was kind of the outlook that I tried to have on it. And so like, there was a very long period too, where I like admittedly did not know I was homeless. And it was like, not until a friend of mine said, he said I was wearing hobo chic clothing. And I said, yeah, you you know, you got good trends too. And he was like, yeah, but it's funny because you're like actually homeless. And I was like, no, I'm not. And he was like, where do you shower? And I said, your house. <laughs> and he was like, you know, all these various different things. Where do you cook? You know, well, I can't cook in my place. I go to fast food, you know, and yeah. yada, yada. And, it, um, and then there's different levels to it where you're like, there's couch surfing. And then when you're living in your vehicle, that's like another notch down. And then when your head is on cement, that's a whole totally different uh, coming back from kind of thing. So, Did you lose your vehicle at some point? So, yeah, I did. I had so many tickets. Um, in addition to just people kind of like partying and like uh, coming out of places drunk and like messing with my car when I was sleeping in it at night, um, but the, I got way more tickets. And so at one point it got impounded. Um, I had to tell my boss uh, – 
what was going on. And I just remember him saying too, like, why didn't you tell me I could have, I could have helped. I could have helped. And I was like, okay, so now I need help. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, well, I don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it was like, well, why don't you call your family? I was very estranged from it that, at that point. Ironically, my mom ended up with cancer. Um, so I tried to do the, okay, I'll move back to Mississippi where it's cheaper, right? Like I should be able to maintain and not be homeless because I'm moving somewhere cheaper. I wasn't able to like stay with my mom and her like new family. She had gotten like remarried. Um, and then I was running a gym and I was staying in the back of the gym. You weren't able to stay with your family because of their concerns about your lifestyle. Yeah, because it was kind of like, okay, you can come back under this premise of like, I'm married to a preacher now. And so nobody in town can know. And then um, I didn't do anything, but people in town started to talk like all 500 of them. (laughs) So, um, and so I had to kind of like, yeah, not be there. I ended up. Uh, doing that traveling thing for a bit and coming back to California. At this point, I had some savings and um, I had found a room on Craigslist and I was going to rent this room and I put all my eggs in this one basket. And I was still pretty young. I was 19 and I got back. The Craigslist apartment fell through. Um, he didn't tell the other person living there that he was going to like rent out this room and then but also he didn't like give me my money back either. And so it was really shady. And basically he told me like the boardwalk is two miles that way. And so, yeah, um, I stayed down there for a long time, for a long time. And when people came up and they were like, hey, we're here to offer you like some housing. Do you want, do you want some help? Like, yeah, absolutely. And I would sit there like with all of my homies like around, you know, they're all tough. And I'm sitting here crying because I'm, I'm thinking like if I tell them about these traumas, then I'm gonna get housing, and and then they there was a, a part on the VI Spadat at that point too. What's where, the VI Spadat? So the VI Spadat is like a vulnerability index, and it's uh, what we use uh, to score uh, who our most vulnerable populations are, so that we can get to them and provide them in the most fitting type of housing. But yeah, there's a lot of very personal questions that go along with finding out how vulnerable you are. So, and at the end of it, at that time, it would say like, where do you stay? Like cross streets. And so I put my cross streets forever. I would like not want to leave the block because I was like, no, one of those ladies with the clipboards is going to come back and she'll tell me like they found housing for me. Like, and, you know, and like, and it kind of became like a joke after a while that I like still believed that was going to happen. And, uh, and you're, you're not working at this point. No, definitely not working. Um, yeah, I, you know, I was so, I was in the sand every day and I was so depressed at that point. Like I had really honestly kind of accepted that if it wasn't by my own means, like by suicide, that that was the place where I was going to die. Like it just, nothing else had like been working out in my unaddressed like PTSD and and traumas was just uh very very present to everyone but me <laughs> uh at the time so oh, so um i just uh we had like what we called hill families and so it was like the people who stayed on your block but it was just also like the people that you vibed with the most to like live with like any kind of community roommate environment but just outside um and everybody would like hold each other to these certain rules and like expectations of like clean up your stuff and yada yada but also also at the same time like they would pick you up when you were down and I remember so we had to move our stuff from one side of the street to the other uh onto the boardwalk and then back and forth every day and but there were some days where I just I wouldn't move I was like lifeless and so depressed that they would just drag me so I didn't get a ticket from the police, you know, and um, and different people like from our family would like come up and make sure I ate and stuff like that. But it was like I had lost like every bit of will to live also at that point, too, because I think there was just so much like culminating in um, feeling like 
the best way that I can say it is that my mother kind of chose God over me and coming to grips with that was like intensely painful. Um, but also at a time where I didn't trust anybody like therapist or anyone to talk to. So, um, eventually some outreach workers started coming out and, um, I still wouldn't like go into their drop-in center. And there was one in particular, Becky, who just knew my name, like would ask me, what do you, what do you want next week when we come? And I'd say like, you know, a comb and she'd say, okay. And like, she'd come back with the comb. Like she would remember the comb, like whatever the little thing was. And then the day that I did therapy for the first time, I had presented so tough and like, I don't need your help, but they had therapy on site. They also had a clinic on site. What organization? This is called Safe Place for Youth and it's up in Venice. And then I started doing therapy and it just was like, with everything that I was living through on the streets, I was able to kind of process it in real time because I was like, how do I summarize this for my therapist on Thursday at drop-in? Like, mm. you know, and like, yeah. so that came to the point where there was a older gentleman who had gone into psychosis because uh, it was his son's birthday and I reminded him of his son. And this was somebody like we lived with, he was like in our, you know, community out there and, um, he just, you know, went into psychosis and uh, he was trying to stab me. I somehow managed to back away from him for a little bit. And I walked behind one of my buddies and I grabbed my skateboard and I just took off on my skateboard. And the drop-in center had made me get a cell phone at this point. And so I was skating away and I was like, as I was skating, I called Becky, my therapist, and I was like, I need to go somewhere. Like, I can't, you know, like, because otherwise, like, you know, tonight's the night, like I'm going to die or whatever. She said to me, hey, uh, your friend Alyssa, do you think you can ask her if she'll go with you? And I was like, yeah. So I just skated over straight to my friend Alyssa. I said, hey, OG tried to stab me, blah, blah, blah. I called Becky. She's going to try to get us a room at the LGBT shelter. You want to go? Yeah. So it was like the support that I needed to also be in a different community and with a different family. Why, why so. did it take that to to do the shelter for you? Um, it just was so far because um, everybody who had protected me was in Venice. And um, at that time, they had the rapid buses. I just found out they don't have them anymore. But it would take an hour and 45 minutes to get to, you know, my therapist, my friends, my support system. One of the things I, I, I talk about and try to listen for as well is when we're talking about people who are in, in the street or living in encampments, you know, humans need shelter, yes, but they also need community and purpose. What you're describing a lot of is that you know, there was a lot of problems with it, but you did have community and that that's almost more powerful than shelter sometimes, right? Like you knew who you were with, you have a rapport, you have a, a shared story with them yeah. and you experience the world with them. That's powerful, almost more than like you're describing, than the promise of warmth and, and shelter. Yeah. Like I have clients with SMIs now that are very hard to place in shelter. and are, are SMI? Uh, serious mental illness or severe mental illness. And, but those, those were people that were in our Hill family and that community that I was in. And they weren't always, you know, it wasn't always quite so negative as, as that experience. Um, but they were like, you know, members of our family that essentially like we looked out for, you know, and if a tourist was making fun of somebody like, you know, that was our brother, that was our sister, you know, and like in a way that I just, unless you're taking encampment by encampment, I don't think you can replicate necessarily. Mm -hmm. So, As in like placing a whole encampment. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, one of the things that is like kind of unfortunate about San Diego is because of like the frequent sweeps and them having to disperse all the time and uh i don't think they get quite uh the chance to stay in the communities that they like choose to be in as much so this scene you're describing in venice you're in an encampment you have tents mm -hmm. it, it, we, we actually didn't have tents at the time yeah so i one question i've always wondered is feels like tents showed up in like 2010 or 9 I always relate, it was like this, it seemed like it coincided with the Occupy movement. It's like Occupy showed people you yeah. can use tents, you know, to, to right. 
to be present as a homeless person or, or in even almost a statement itself. Do you have a sense of when tents and why they showed up? It's so funny because I'm not that old, but it's one of those like uh, things like when I was your age, yeah, we didn't get to yeah. have tents. Um, I, <laughs> I know how much of a difference like tents would have made for us for sure. So you're one of the, the other things that always comes up is like, well, San Diego, LA too, such a warm climate. Like obviously they want to be homeless here. They want to be here, but it gets cold at night. It, even in the summer, it can get chilly, but like it's 45 or 50 degrees out. You're cold. It is. It is such a, uh, for like a lack of a better word, like privileged uh, kind of thought process because it's at the end of the day, like California is still a desert. Yeah. And we know that deserts are cold at night. Like <laughs> just because yeah. we have like all these buildings doesn't make it not a desert. Yeah. So yeah, it is freezing at night. And I I always when I come into work in the morning to try to absolutely never say anything about me being cold because they've been in it already for, you know, the last twenty four hours and I'm just pissed off because I had to get up. But <laughs> Well let's let's before we transition to the conversation about homelessness, what to do, where we're at. Let's finish your story. You Is this the start of you um, finding stability in, in housing? Yeah. So that um, same organization, Safe Place for Youth, got me essentially like three different housing matches. Um, they weren't all smooth with no bumps. So they got me into the LGBT center. I found out I was having a son. And so really, we had to really start pushing gears there. So when my son came along, it was like, then it was like Tay services also meets like family services and there just wasn't anything like for us and then nothing that was close anywhere near close. So yeah, so uh, they got me into the LGBT center. I had to move out of there. Um, I went to uh, family housing, which that was in Venice. Um, but then- You mean a shelter for families? It was transitional. Okay. Yeah. So a little bit- uh, you know, better, but still we all, we all shared community space and I had some good roommates there. So after that, so, uh, DCFS got involved from the time that my son was born. Um, and then ended up getting involved again because I was the victim of domestic violence. And so right after that, pretty much the only route for me was kind of, there was a lot of funding at that time for rehab and treatment and stuff like that. So, um, while I know how fortunate I am that I didn't come down with a substance use addiction because I saw it happen to so many of my friends. Um, I did partake from time to time. Um, but for the most part, like I, I went to rehab for pot. It feels like if you're, if you're cold, if you're miserable, if you're in pain, if you have trauma, it seems like a pill that might make you feel better would be attractive. And obviously some of these versus others are so addictive that it doesn't take much. And I, I struggle with people who talk about the homeless as like, well, they're, they're, they're addicted to drugs and they're suffering from mental illness because you don't know if that happened and that's why they're homeless or if, if they're homeless and that's why some of these problems grew, right? So it's like, so yeah, I, I was curious. Did you? How did you avoid that? It seems like it would be very hard to avoid. From my perspective, especially because so many of the people that I was homeless with were also very young. So it was like they would still tell you about what had just happened, you know, with their parents because it was only a couple years before. Um, so I just think so much of it is a it's a symptom more than a cause. In my case too. So um, I was in tobacco for youth growing up. Um, I tried to always play it safe. I like did everything my parents told me. I was trying to be a golden boy. And then um, right after that, it was like, you know, after I was no longer like welcome in my family, I was living in my car, all of those things that they had kind of told me, oh, you won't succeed, you'll end up homeless, or oh, you'll end up on drugs, or oh, you'll end up doing this. There was one night when I was staying in my car in Weddington Park where all my friends from work, I saw them like like gathering in the park and I was like, oh no, they're going to know I'm homeless. So I got out of the car and, and these were housed people, you know? Um, and so they were like, what are you doing here? And I was like, oh, you know, like, I just, 
came with you guys, you know, and they were like, oh, well, we're smoking a bowl. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, okay. So in my case, even with pot, which most people smoke pot, I feel like much younger, mm-hmm. um, that even that didn't happen until after I was already homeless mm-hmm. because it, it sort of felt like, okay, now I need to fall into this criteria of like, you know, I didn't succeed in that society. Now I'm in this society. Um, so, and so, yeah, the first times that, uh, I, I thank God fentanyl wasn't, I mean, I'm sure it was around, but it was not anything like what it is today. And the drug of choice on the streets at that time was pretty much methamphetamines. And I remember also having conscious decisions to like rationalizing it in my mind, like why I was going to occasionally smoke meth with my friends. And so like one of them was that they would go in the mornings and they would leave me like sitting there and I would get propositioned all the time. Like, and I would be like not even awake, you know, no coffee. And, um, and it would get really creepy sometimes. You mean Uh, sexually or for drugs? Sexually. Yeah. Um, like bright and early in the morning too, just the scenes you wouldn't expect. And, and so, um, that was part of it where it was like, okay, I'll go in there. I'm sorry, you'd go with them so you could avoid the people trying to come on to you. Right. And the, the, whether they're doing drugs or whatever, at least they're not doing that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and they definitely, you know, weren't going to let anybody like talk to me like that around them. Yeah. Um, and so I would go with them. And then also, uh, when I would get, you know, robbed or sometimes like you could negotiate and like, get your stuff back like from the people like the police and the people throwing your stuff away but there was also this like kind of mindset like i got the feeling like you know i was very soft and like i needed to to not be so kind because my kindness was taken for weakness and so that was another contributing factor where i was like oh well like meth makes people like you know mean but (laughs) tough or whatever like i i there was like a a protective essence to it where it was like I needed to be mean to stay safe. So again, you're with the National Alliance on Mental Illness, uh, the San Diego uh, chapter. You're housed. Yep. Um, what what is it that you are doing every day in the community, and and what's your mission now, your purpose? Yeah. So. I currently work as a housing navigator. Um, I got my foot in the door about four years ago working in homeless services as a peer support, uh, which is just such a great uh, job to go into, not just because it's a job, but for your own recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so rewarding. Um, and then uh, as a housing navigator, I do those VI spadats now, uh, but I do it from a lived experience lens. So I know how traumatizing they can be. And I'm try to make sure, you know, my clients know you don't have to elaborate on any of this. If you need resources or somebody to talk to after we go slow or, and they know that they can say they don't want to answer certain questions. Um, and I try to always give them realistic expectations of kind of what's come, what's to come. Um, because essentially whether they need socks or lunch or whatever, if you ask someone coming in the door, what do they need? They're going to say housing. Um, and from that first meeting, an appointment with me to the point that they get housing is a very, very long ride. So um, also through that lived experience lens, I can kind of like brace them for that and be like, build up your support system, you know, like keep your head on straight, like, um, you know, and some, some of the kind of tips and pitfalls that I wish some people had told me to avoid. Um and I also work with lived experience advisors, which is uh, was another huge, crucial part of my recovery as far as like rehabilitating into society. Um, but lived experience advisors gives me the opportunity to advocate not only on my lived experience and my lens, but also because I'm working in it every day in San Diego, I get to directly advocate for what I'm seeing. So this, and you're in that role talking to any group that needs help to understand the, the, the issue. Maybe there's a philanthropist that wants to get involved and 
addressing homelessness, you can provide some counseling or, or consulting service about what to do and how to do it, right? Yep. And then also too, just uh, it's miraculous how much of it is just telling our stories and then yeah. you can go, oh, I see why that doesn't work that way. Yeah. That we really thought it did in this presentation. Like, <laughs> Right. Right now we're in a, and I've been trying to get people to think about this as, this is just such a, an acute and severe crisis that we have so many people suffering in the streets. We have um, more every month, it feels like. It, not, it feels like the numbers show it. We have, and we have this kind of three-dimensional crisis. And uh, correct me if you think it needs to be said differently, but on the one hand, there's a housing availability, just the very cost of living, uh, the rents, the mortgages, the the just what it takes. If you're on the street right now and you want to get into an apartment, you have to have like you got to get like ten thousand dollars together, right? Like to pay all the deposits and the you know the monthly fees or whatever months they want you to pay in advance, yeah. just to have the kind of financial security they want to see before they'll let you into a place, right? Um, so the cost just to get into a place is is where it's at. It's going up. So we have that housing problem and cost of living problem. And then we have this um, actual population that is in, and as you said, like a spectrum of homelessness, right? There are people couch surfing. We don't see, we don't know what, what's going on with them. We have people in cars who are moving around. They're still less visible, but they're still visible. And then we have these vast encampments and street homelessness that's occurring. And that itself is a problem. And then how it interacts with the community is a problem, right? So we have like these three sort of giant impossible problems, they feel like. And, and so I want to talk to you about what you would do if you had like a magic wand on each one, but also just like what we need to know about each one. But um, how long have you been involved in, in this problem in San Diego? So really, four, I mean, four years that I've been working in homeless services in San Diego. Um, but then really the last two years, I got real bored working overnights during the pandemic and just started researching the heck out of stuff. At some point, I had an inkling that there just might not be enough housing units for everybody in San Diego. And it was, you know, like I said, I was working it overnight and it and it was like a giant light bulb went off and I was like, I couldn't wait till morning to share my findings with everyone. Um, only to find out that like that was, you know, pretty common knowledge. Um, uh, and so I like the, the magic wand, uh, question because, um, if I were to do one thing, I mean, it would be to create wave a wand and have that housing created that meets the regional housing needs assessment, which is closer to 109,000 by 2030. And we need to be doing about 10,000 units per year. Mm -hmm. um, right now, the county has agreed to do 10,000 units on uh, their land by 2030. But that makes a huge difference uh, for what we still need. As far as like the mental health, uh, substance use, trauma, uh, any and all of that. I mean, if we waved a magic wand and said, okay, there's no more mental health and there's no more substance use disorder, you know, there's not a place for every one of those people to go today. And then you say, okay, well, it takes time to get sober. Okay. Well, like the treatments are like 90 days to six months. So still, even if right now today, everybody in San Diego decided to make that move, we don't have the infrastructure to support it. So so we hear a lot, and as you know, I think if if you talk to people, there's an impression that the vast majority of the homeless people they they see have a substance abuse or and or mental illness um, crisis that they're dealing with, and obviously that's that's just an overgeneralization has no bearing. But there are so many people who you you can see right now, right out in front of our building, people who are struggling. If you were to tell people one thing 
about what they should know about what they see every day in the parks and in the streets, what would you want to tell them? Uh, there's a expectation amongst this part of our society that sees this society as kind of the only reality. Um, and very much we have deemed uh, the unsheltered people in our communities like outcasts of society. You know, it's or worse, right? Like almost subhuman, like right, absolutely. And so, without like ever having experienced what that feels like when you ask someone what time it is and they say, "I don't have any," you know, like, and worse, <laughs> um, that's an entirely, entirely different reality. And so, when people question sometimes, like, "Oh, why?" You know, I asked him flat out, like. If if there was housing for you today, would you say yes? And he told me no. You know, there's people. I, I have a, a friend who's still out there who um, she grew up in um, various foster homes, but she 100% associates housing with sexual trauma. And so same thing with her. If you were to ask her, do you want housing? That's not something that she sees as a uh you know, a, a crucial need for like the reality that she's been living in. Like, so, um, that's, yeah, that's just the biggest thing. It is, it, it is. And then people say it too, almost jokingly, like, Oh, it's like, you know, they don't, they don't abide by the rules of reality or abide by the rules of society. Like I always hear that with, uh, them walking in the street. I'm like, that was one of my little things I used to do to just kind of be one suicidal and, and just to have any sense of like power or control was just crossing the street whenever I wanted to. Um, cause it was one, like, go ahead, hit me. And then two, it was like, you stopped for me. Let's, yeah. let's press on that for a second. That's a really interesting point. So much of what you've described is something that's also present in other mental health dilemmas, which is this like lack of control. Like you lost control, right? You have no control over anything and you want it and you find it in different ways. And so what you're talking about is when, when we see some of these moments play out in the street, we might be watching somebody trying to assert some level of control over a world that, where they are completely lost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it was, uh, it was so interesting. I feel like each person in my street family had like their own little flex or their own little way of, of kind of like asserting that dominance in a sense of like, so my one friend blue, for example, he would sit on the sidewalk, but he would put his legs like way straight out in front of him. And, uh, sometimes like when people would walk by, if they didn't say anything, it was like, okay. But if they would be like, dude, you're blocking the sidewalk, he would be like, I live here. Like I live here. And he wasn't wrong. He seemed like a total jerk, <laughs> yeah. 100%. But for him, he was like, this is my home. I at least want the space from my head to my toes. Like, you know, and, and sorry if that's the sidewalk, but this is my home. And I had another buddy too who, when he would, just very, very interesting things. Like, you know, a psychologist would just have a field day sitting there watching. But uh, my other buddy, he would ask someone for a cigarette. And when they would give it to him, he would drop it on the ground. And then he would pick it up and go, oops, blah, blah, blah. And he would light it and smoke it. And and it would just be kind of a, a, a test to see what their reaction was to like, I just gave you something and you dropped it on the ground. And, and you know, we all saw him do it over and over and over and over to people. Whereas some people just, you know, may not realize, but that was his way of obtaining control and of like reality where we just did not have any. One of the things that I been thinking about a lot as well is 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 we discussed the tents the to me when the tents came a lot of things changed one one was people who were unsheltered felt like they had to hide before like you said like or they 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 were in the parks or in the riverbeds or in the alleys and that the tents were very clearly, in my opinion, a way to show like control or like, we're not going to hide from you anymore. We're not going to pretend like 
and and we're going to assert. It's almost like a protest. That's why I, I associated it so much with Occupy. It was like Occupy was this organized, like almost bourgeoisie version of like what is went on after that, which was like just this like widespread ongoing protest in a way. Not that they were necessarily conscious or pushing that explicitly, but that was that was like we're not going to move. And but they also represented this this longing to have shelter like it was and it changed the dynamics like it was like you you had to not not only just say like well do you want to be warmer to like like you have to almost present them a better option and it feels like the city has taken the opposite path which was to try to make them as uncomfortable as possible again to try to you know they saw the same thing happen where the tents became just as or uh, they they made it more equal the the shelter option versus the 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 street option and that their answer to that was rather than make shelters more attractive or available or whatever was to make the tents as uncomfortable as possible and we're we're seeing i think the the latest in another year of proving that it doesn't work to necessarily just whack-a-mole them all the time and move them around that said like I also feel very strongly that like you can't privatize public rights of way. Like you can't, whether it's a tent or or, or you know just a person with an encampment, you can't take a beach or a park and take it for yourself. Like whether you're McDonald's or whether you're you're a person trying to find housing. And so how we reconcile that, I I have kept coming back to the idea of well, I see the need for housing and and have pushed it and tried to articulate it as much as as anyone as we wait for that to occur though we should vastly increase the number of safe places that we can allow people to to have their their encampments their communities their their cars their 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 car slash homes so that you know there are there are better options for them to do that but but we're focused it feels like in tearing the the efforts that they already have built for shelter down all the way to where they're as uncomfortable as possible so that they're forced into the warehousing sort of system that we have is that all accurate? Do you feel like that's a, a representation that I could stand behind yeah yeah and then and then I'd add to that too there's always a, a narrative too of like looking out for the the kids in schools or the kids who want to play in the parks. Um, but th- like the reality is, is like even today I saw like there's, there's areas where these encampments form where they are intentionally like not trying to bother anybody. And so like by NAMI is one of those, like on 16th street um, you have like us, you have like a sign shop and then you have MTS on the other side. Um, and then there's really not a whole lot going on on that street. 17th, same thing. There's even less, um, over there. You got alpha on one side. Um, and so they, they do like, we'll try to, you know, be in these areas where it's like, oh, like not right next to the preschool playground or whatever. But, um, and then what I just witnessed on my way over here right now is that, um, that area where there's like four different leveled concrete, uh, slab lots right by mcdonald's they were clearing all the people right there and it's like in those instances it's it's you know you're not looking out for business owners or you're you're not looking out for the children because you know dispersing those areas forces them more into neighborhoods and forces them you know uh like on 16th street we have uh the porta potty right Mm -hmm. it forces them farther away from restrooms you know granted they're not the most luxurious restrooms but you know, that's, that's where they go. So when they're sweeping areas like that intensively, it, it just really goes against kind of what they say they're doing it for. So let's say you were mayor and I were your chief of staff and we're in office and we say like, we're going to declare this whole situation an emergency, not just declare with some, you know, executive orders or whatever, but like, say like, we're going to treat this as though, a hurricane or a tsunami hit and there are thousands of displaced people, what would happen then? We would have vast areas, it feels like with FEMA tents, we would have like, we would try to 
provide these sort of emergency activities every day. There'd be like a press conference every day about the status of different projects that we're pursuing or the numbers that day. You know, there would be, we would treat it the way that COVID was those first right. few weeks, right? Where it was just like- The numbers every, on the screen every day. Yeah. And in that, if we had like this relentless effort to figure out the safe places where people could go, where we could, as a community, make an accord, like you can go here, leave these areas alone or whatever. We And then we're relentlessly focused. The numbers could be up there about permanent supportive housing and other different shelter options. And I also feel like throughout history, every time you read a historical biography or something, you read about somebody who was homeless at some point, but they got to go to like a boarding house or they had a different like minimal housing experience that you could go to. Exactly that we don't have it feels like you either have enough for an apartment or you're in the almost the lottery of of affordable housing subsidized affordable housing or you're you know you got nothing mm -hmm. and there's nothing at that like very low level and so if we had just like spectrum of of goals and we had this emergency moment and we had these safe places where you could go as you wait for your 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 time through it that would be like a very, I think, healthy system of dealing with this. Do you see a problem with any of that sort I, of? No, it's so needed. And it's, I mean, like, let's not be a naive. This is not going to be the last, even if, you know, we solve this, this won't be the last crisis that we face. We have, we live in a highly flammable wildfire area. We have earthquakes here. Um, the refugees are not going to stop coming and they also will contribute to our homeless numbers because not being able to get work, et cetera, right. everything that goes along with that. Um, we're not, we're not prepared for, we're not prepared for obviously this existing emergency. We knew that we weren't prepared for COVID and God, we need that foresight because even the goals, you know, aren't, aren't don't quite acknowledge the needs of our community. So the mayor said something the other day he was, he's seeing, and I'm sure you're seeing it on the streets, this explosion of, of deaths associated in particular with opioid and fentanyl use. Um, and opioids in particular have terrified me over the last 10 years because of what they do to people like you and i'm sure i don't think people quite understand it. it's not like they're getting high and then they go too far and they die if they don't get after a certain level of dependence builds up if they don't get the drug they feel as bad as possible right like yeah. you feel as sick like dying. as possible as painful as it gets and You'll do anything at that point to to try to deal with it. That's the dope sick phenomenon, right? And I feel like if pe if more people had a grasp of just how desperate that gets and why that creates so much ongoing dependency and why it's so hard to get people off that, that until you really grasp just how scary and painful that experience is. And yet, so we have um, the mayor, he came out the other day and said like, we need to up the consequences of dealing these drugs. We need to um, do a bunch of sort of vague things that, uh, you know, to really ramp up enforcement along these lines and try to do it. It feels like to me, we're dealing with almost a different virus in a way like this. The spreading of this dependency is itself like a virus. And if you don't, if you're not compassionate about the people who have it, it's going to keep going. Absolutely. And, and that also may apply to like, you know, if you, I think we all want to go after these dealers, but the, you know, there's, that's going to create its own consequences in a way. So how would you, if, if you've seen what's going on in the street, you've dealt with mental illness and seen it from a lived experience as well, what is, what is something you think could be done about that particular problem uh, and, uh, and, and the ongoing struggle with, with drugs? Because we have had throughout history periods of intense homelessness throughout San Diego. But I think that this adds a new dimension of like severe, almost poisoning of, a, of an entire demographic. Absolutely. Yes. There's so many things to touch on here, but 
fentanyl is like laced into everything now too. There was one day that I had to Narcan and revive a guy. And as soon as he sat up, cause you know, he had no idea what was going on. Um, he thought that me and the other gentleman standing next to me had robbed him. And then the guy yelled at him. He just, he just revived you. He just saved you. And like I said, the guy said, I don't do H. I don't, I don't do Fetty. I just smoke meth. But there was enough of that in it that he had OD'd and was just so shocked and really just thought we came up with the best story for robbing him ever. But, mm. um, and then, um, so that creates, uh, even more complexity to the issue because opioids require medical withdrawal mm -hmm. because of that feeling like you're going to die because you can die withdrawing from opioids. Um, and then when it comes to low income people and people on Medi-Cal, we only have one detox facility as an option and that's McAllister. Um, so let me just, what you said is actually very profound and troubling. If we have thousands of people struggling with what is in effect a, physical dependence on this drug that if withdrew, if withdrawn would cause severe pain, if not like just unimaginable behavioral and, and sort of desperation impacts that the only option we have, we have one place for those, what could be like 20,000 people in San Diego right. that are acutely and directly right now dependent on that high level opioid. Yeah. And as a whole, I believe it's 15% of San Diego's population suffers from some type, some type of substance use. So, um, uh, yeah, we're just, you know, in no way prepared. And, and then it comes down to that, that same thing of being ready when someone asks for the help. So if that day that I was skateboarding after the guy tried to stab me and I called Becky and I said, okay, I needed somewhere to go. If she said, okay, I'm going to call some places and we'll they'll let me you. know. We're going to call every morning for the next three days and see if we can get you a bed. Like I would have been dead and like, you know, or, or, or realize like, you know, you failed me or whatever, but being there, like being ready when people are ready to make that decision is, is so crucial. And it, it's just really unfortunate for the housing navigator piece and the case management piece that, you know, it's not, and, and it may be somebody coming in for the day. And when they say, oh, I wanted to get into rehab, we already know because we called at nine o'clock for somebody trying to get into a rehab. And we already know that it's full, you know. So that might be part of the emergency plan we put together is like three more places Absolutely. to get people into when they're ready to go through that medical withdrawal. Levi Giafilioni. Thank you so much for coming in. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in San Diego that is edited expertly by Nate John. It's the most popular public affairs podcast edited by Nate John. Keep up with everything we're doing with The Morning Report. Check it out and subscribe at vosd.org slash morning. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and Editor-in-Chief at Voice San Diego. Nate John is our producer, also editor of this show. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon.